Deng's political challenge was that in the first 30 years of communist rule, China had been governed by a dominating leader who propelled it toward unity and international respect, but also toward unsustainable domestic and social goals. Mao had unified the country, and except for Taiwan and Mongolia, restored it to its historic limits. But he demanded of it efforts contrary to its historic distinctiveness. China had achieved greatness by developing a cultural model in rhythm with the pace its society could sustain. Mao's continuous revolution had driven China to the limits of even its vast endurance. It had produced pride in the re-emergence of a national identity taken seriously by the international community. But it had not discovered how China could progress other than through fits of ideological exaltation. Mao had governed as a traditional emperor of a majestic and awe-inspiring kind. He embodied the myth of the imperial rule, supplying the link between heaven and earth, and closer to the divine than the terrestrial. Deng governed in the spirit of another Chinese tradition, basing omnipotence on the ubiquitousness but also the invisibility of the ruler. Many cultures, and surely all Western ones, buttress the authority of the ruler by demonstrative contact of some kind with the ruled. This is why in Athens, Rome, and most Western pluralistic states, oratory was considered an asset in government. There is no general tradition of oratory in China. Mao was somewhat of an exception. Chinese leaders traditionally have not based their authority on rhetorical skills or physical contact with the masses. In the Mandarin tradition, they operate essentially out of sight, legitimized by performance. Deng held no major office. He refused all honorific titles. He almost never appeared on television and practiced politics almost entirely behind the scenes. He ruled not like an emperor, but as the principal Mandarin. Mao had governed by counting on the endurance of the Chinese people to sustain the suffering his personal visions would impose on them. Deng governed by liberating the creativeness of the Chinese people to bring about their own vision of the future. Mao strove for economic advancement with mystical faith in the power of the Chinese masses to overcome any obstacle by sheer willpower and ideological purity. Deng was forthright about China's poverty and the vast gaps that separated its standard of living from that of the developed world. Decreeing that poverty is not socialism, Deng proclaimed that China needed to obtain foreign technology, expertise, and capital to remedy its deficiencies. Deng culminated his return at the December 1978 Third Plenum of the 11th Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. The plenum promulgated the slogan that would characterize all of Deng's subsequent policies, reform and opening up. Marking a break with Maoist orthodoxy, the Central Committee approved pragmatic socialist modernization policies, echoing Zhou Enlai's four modernizations. Private initiative in agriculture was again permitted. The verdict on the crowds mourning Zhou, which had earlier been deemed counter-revolutionary, was reversed. And the veteran military commander Peng Dehuai, 
who had commanded during the Korean War and was later purged by Mao for criticizing the Great Leap Forward, was posthumously rehabilitated. At the close of the conference, Deng issued a clarion call in a speech on how to emancipate our minds, use our heads, seek truth from facts, and unite as one in looking to the future. After a decade in which Mao Zedong had prescribed the answer to virtually all of life's questions, Deng stressed the need to loosen ideological constraints and encourage thinking things out for yourself. Using Lin Biao as a metaphor for the Gang of Four and aspects of Mao, Deng condemned intellectual taboos and bureaucratism. Merit needed to replace ideological correctness. Too many took the road of least resistance and fell in with the prevalent stagnation. In fact, the current debate about whether practice is the sole criterion for testing truth is also a debate about whether people's minds need to be emancipated. When everything has to be done by the book, when thinking turns rigid and blind faith is the fashion, it is impossible for a party or a nation to make progress. Its life will cease, and that party or nation will perish. Independent creative thinking was to be the principal guideline of the future. The more party members and other people there are who use their heads and think things through, the more our cause will benefit. To make revolution and build socialism, we need large numbers of pathbreakers who dare to think, explore new ways, and generate new ideas. Otherwise, we won't be able to rid our country of poverty and backwardness, or to catch up with, still less surpass, the advanced countries. The break with Maoist orthodoxy at the same time revealed the reformers' dilemma. The revolutionaries' dilemma is that most revolutions occur in opposition to what is perceived as abuse of power. But the more existing obligations are dismantled, the more force must be used to recreate a sense of obligation. Hence, the frequent outcome of revolution is an increase in central power. The more sweeping the revolution, the more this is true. The dilemma of reform is the opposite. The more the scope of choice is expanded, the harder it becomes to compartmentalize it. In pursuit of productivity, Deng stressed the importance of thinking things out for yourself, and advocated the complete emancipation of minds. Yet, what if those minds, once emancipated, demanded political pluralism? Deng's vision called for large numbers of pathbreakers who dare to think, explore new ways. And generate new ideas, but it assumed that these pathbreakers would limit themselves to exploring practical ways to build a prosperous China, and stay away from exploration of ultimate political objectives. How did Deng envision reconciling emancipation of thought with the imperative for political stability? Was this a calculated risk, based on the assessment that China had no better alternative? Or did he, following Chinese tradition, reject the likelihood of any challenge to political stability, especially as Deng was making the Chinese people better off and considerably freer? Deng's vision of economic liberalization and national revitalization did not include a significant move toward what would be recognized in the West as pluralistic democracy. Deng sought to preserve one-party rule. 
not so much because he reveled in the perquisites of power. He famously abjured many of the luxuries of Mao and Jiangqing, but because he believed the alternative was anarchy. Deng was soon forced to confront these issues. In the 1970s, he had encouraged individuals to air their grievances about suffering during the Cultural Revolution. But when this newfound openness developed into nascent pluralism, Deng in 1979 found himself obliged to discuss in detail how he understood the nature of freedom, as well as its limits. In the recent period, a small number of persons have provoked incidents in some places. Instead of accepting the guidance, advice, and explanations of leading officials of the party and government, certain bad elements have raised sundry demands that cannot be met at present or are altogether unreasonable. They have provoked or tricked some of the masses into raiding party and government organizations, occupying offices, holding sit-down and hunger strikes, and obstructing traffic. Thereby seriously disrupting production, other work, and public order. That these incidents were not isolated or rare events was demonstrated by the catalog of them presented by Deng. He decried the China Human Rights Group, which had gone so far as to request that the President of the United States show concern for human rights in China. Can we permit such an open call for intervention in China's internal affairs? Deng's catalog. Included the Shanghai Democracy Forum, which, according to Deng, advocated a turn to capitalism. Some of these groups, according to Deng, had made clandestine contact with the nationalist authorities in Taiwan, and others were talking of seeking political asylum abroad. This was an astonishing admission of political challenge. Deng was clearer about its scope than about how to deal with it. The struggle against these individuals is no simple matter that can be settled quickly. We must strive to clearly distinguish between people, many of them innocent young people, and the counter-revolutionaries and bad elements who have hoodwinked them, and whom we must deal with sternly and according to law. What kind of democracy do the Chinese people need today? It can only be socialist democracy, people's democracy, and not bourgeois democracy, individualist democracy. Though he was insistent on authoritarian conduct of politics, Deng abandoned the personality cult, declined to purge his predecessor Hua Guofeng, instead allowing him to fade into insignificance, and began planning for an orderly succession for himself. After consolidating power, Deng declined to occupy most of the top formal positions in the party hierarchy. As he explained to me in 1982 when I met with him in Beijing. Dung, I am approaching the stage when I will become outmoded. Kissinger, it doesn't appear so from reading the documents of the Party Congress. Dung, I am now on the advisory commission. Kissinger, I consider that a sign of self-confidence. Dung, the aging of our leadership has compelled us to this, so we have historical experience and lessons. Kissinger, I do not know what title to use for you. Dung. I have several hats. I am a member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo and Chairman of the Advisory Commission, and also Chairman of the People's Political Consultative Conference. I would like to give this out to others. I have too many titles. I have so many titles. I want to do as less as possible. My colleagues also hope I will take care of less routine affairs. The only purpose is that I can live longer. Deng 
broke with the precedent set by Mao by downplaying his own expertise rather than presenting himself as a genius in any particular field. He entrusted his subordinates to innovate, then endorsed what worked. As he explained with typical directness in a 1984 conference on foreign investment, I am a layman in the field of economics. I have made a few remarks on the subject, but all from a political point of view. For example, I proposed China's economic policy of opening to the outside world, but as for the details or specifics of how to implement it, I know very little indeed. As he elaborated his domestic vision, Deng grew into China's face to the world. By 1980, his ascendance was complete. At the fifth plenum of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in February 1980, Hua Guofeng's supporters were demoted or relieved of their posts. Deng's allies, Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, were appointed to the Politburo Standing Committee. Deng's massive changes were not achieved without significant social and political tensions, ultimately culminating in the Tiananmen Square crisis of 1989. But a century after the thwarted promise of China's self-strengthening 19th-century reformers, Deng had tamed and reinvented Mao's legacy, launching China headlong on a course of reform that was in time to reclaim the influence to which its performance and history entitled it. Chapter 13 Touching the Tiger's Buttocks The Third Vietnam War In April 1979, Hoa Guofeng, still China's premier, summed up the results of the Third Vietnam War, in which China had invaded Vietnam and withdrawn after six weeks in a contemptuous dig at the Soviet role. They did not dare to move, so after all, we could still touch the buttocks of the tiger. Note, Touch the tiger's buttocks is a Chinese idiom popularized by Mao, meaning to do something daring or dangerous. The occasion of this remark was my meeting with Hua Guofeng in Beijing in April 1979. China had invaded Vietnam to teach it a lesson after Vietnamese troops had occupied Cambodia in response to a series of border clashes with the Khmer Rouge, which had taken over Cambodia in 1975. and in ultimate pursuit of Hanoi's goal of creating an Indochina federation. China had done so in defiance of a mutual defense treaty between Hanoi and Moscow, signed less than a month earlier. The war had been extremely costly to the Chinese armed forces, not yet fully restored from the depredations of the Cultural Revolution. Note, during the Cultural Revolution, then-Defense Minister Lin Biao abolished all ranks and insignia, and ordered extensive ideological training for Chinese troops using the Little Red Book of Mao's aphorisms. The PLA was called on to play social and ideological roles far outside the mission of an ordinary military. But the invasion served its fundamental objective. When the Soviet Union failed to respond, it demonstrated the limitations of its strategic reach. From that point of view, it can be considered a turning point of the Cold War. though it was not fully understood as such at the time. The Third Vietnam War was also the high point of Sino-American strategic cooperation during the Cold War. Vietnam, Confounder of Great Powers China found itself involved in the Third Vietnam War by factors comparable 
to what had drawn the United States into the second one. Something in the almost maniacal Vietnamese nationalism drives other societies to lose their sense of proportion and to misapprehend Vietnamese motivations and their own possibilities. That certainly was America's fate in what is now treated by historians as the Second Vietnam War, the first being Vietnam's anti-colonial war with France. Americans found it difficult to accept that a medium-sized developing nation could cultivate such a fierce commitment only for its own parochial causes. Hence, they interpreted Vietnamese actions as symbols of a deeper design. Hanoi's combativeness was treated as a vanguard of a Sino-Soviet coordinated conspiracy to dominate at least Asia, and Washington believed as well that once the initial thrust by Hanoi was blocked, some diplomatic compromise might emerge. The assessment was wrong on both grounds. Hanoi was not any other country's proxy. It fought for its vision of independence and ultimately for an Indo-Chinese federation which assigned to Hanoi in Southeast Asia the dominant role Beijing had historically played in East Asia. To these single-minded survivors of centuries of conflict with China, compromise was inconceivable between their idea of independence and any outsider's conception of stability. The poignancy of the Second Vietnam War in Indochina was the interaction between the American yearning for compromise and the North Vietnamese insistence on victory. In that sense, America's overriding mistake in the Vietnam War was not what divided the American public, whether the U.S. government was sufficiently devoted to a diplomatic outcome. Rather, it was the inability to face the fact that a so-called diplomatic outcome, so earnestly, even desperately sought by successive administrations of both American political parties, required pressures equivalent to what amounted to the total defeat of Hanoi, and that Moscow and Beijing had only a facilitating, not a directive role. In a more limited way, Beijing fell into a parallel misconception. When the U.S. buildup in Vietnam began, Beijing interpreted it in Wei Chi terms as another example of American bases surrounding China from Korea to the Taiwan Strait and now to Indochina. China supported the North Vietnamese guerrilla war, partly for reasons of ideology, partly in order to push American bases as far from Chinese borders as possible. Zhou Enlai told North Vietnamese Prime Minister Pham Van Dong in April 1968 that China supported North Vietnam to prevent the strategic encirclement of China, to which Pham Van Dong gave an equivocal reply, largely because preventing the encirclement of China was not a Vietnamese objective, and Vietnamese objectives were national ones. Joe, for a long time, the United States has been half encircling China. Now the Soviet Union is also encircling China. The circle is getting complete, except the part of Vietnam. Pham, we are all the more determined to defeat the U.S. imperialists in all of Vietnamese territory. Joe, that is why we support you. Pham, that we are victorious will have a positive impact in Asia. Our victory will bring about unforeseeable outcomes. Joe, you should think that way. In pursuit of a Chinese strategy from which Pham Van Dong had been careful to stay aloof, 
China sent over 100,000 non-combat military personnel to support North Vietnamese infrastructure and logistics. The United States opposed North Vietnam as the spearhead of a Soviet Chinese design. China supported Hanoi to blunt a perceived American thrust to dominate Asia. Both were mistaken. Hanoi fought only for its own national account. And a unified communist-led Vietnam, victorious in its second war in 1975, would turn out to be a far greater strategic threat to China than to the United States. The Vietnamese eyed their northern neighbor with suspicion approaching paranoia. During long periods of Chinese domination, Vietnam had absorbed the Chinese writing system and political and cultural forms, evidenced most spectacularly in the imperial palace and tombs at the former capital of Hue. Vietnam had used these Chinese institutions, however, to build a separate state and bolster its own independence. Geography did not allow Vietnam to retreat into isolation as Japan had at a comparable period in its history. From the 2nd century BC through the 10th century, Vietnam was under more or less direct Chinese rule, re-emerging fully as an independent state only with the collapse of the Tang Dynasty in the year 907. Vietnamese national identity came to reflect the legacy of two somewhat contradictory forces. On the one hand, absorption of Chinese culture. On the other, opposition to Chinese political and military domination. Resistance to China helped produce a passionate pride in Vietnamese independence and a formidable military tradition. Absorption of Chinese culture provided Vietnam with a Chinese-style Confucian elite who possessed something of a regional Middle Kingdom complex of their own vis-à-vis -vis their neighbors. During the Indochina Wars of the 20th century, Hanoi displayed its sense of political and cultural entitlement by availing itself of Laos and Cambodian neutral territory as if by right, and after the war, extending special relationships with the communist movements in each of these countries, amounting to Vietnamese dominance. Vietnam confronted China with an unprecedented psychological and geopolitical challenge, Hanoi's leaders were familiar with Sun Tzu's art of war and employed its principles to significant effect against both France and the United States. Even before the end of the long Vietnam Wars, first with the French seeking to reclaim their colony after World War II, and then with the United States from 1963 to 1975, both Beijing and Hanoi began to realize that the next contest would be between themselves for dominance in Indochina and Southeast Asia. Cultural proximity may account for the relative absence of the sure touch in strategic analysis that usually guided Chinese policy during America's Vietnam War. Ironically, Beijing's long-term strategic interest was probably parallel to Washington's, an outcome in which four Indochinese states, North and South Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, balanced each other. This may explain why Mao, in outlining possible outcomes of the war to Edgar Snow in 1965, listed an outcome preserving South Vietnam as possible, and therefore presumably acceptable. During my secret trip to Beijing in 1971, 
Zhou explained China's objectives in Indochina as being neither strategic nor ideological. According to Zhou, Chinese policy in Indochina was based entirely on a historical debt incurred by ancient dynasties. China's leaders probably assumed that America could not be defeated, and that the north of a divided Vietnam would come to depend on Chinese support, much as North Korea did after the end of the Korean War. As the war evolved, there were several signs that China was preparing itself, albeit reluctantly, for Hanoi's victory. Intelligence noticed Chinese road building in northern Laos that had no relevance to the ongoing conflict with the United States, but would be useful for post-war strategy to balance Hanoi, or even a possible conflict over Laos. In 1973, after the Paris Agreement to end the Vietnam War, Joe and I were negotiating a post-war settlement for Cambodia, based on a coalition among Norodom Sihanouk, the exiled former ruler of Cambodia residing in Beijing, the existing Phnom Penh government, and the Khmer Rouge. Its main purpose was to create an obstacle to a takeover of Indochina by Hanoi. The agreement ultimately aborted when the U.S. Congress, in effect, prohibited any further military role for America in the region, making the American role irrelevant. Note: I have always believed that having been willing to force the to Mao ideologically correct Khmer Rouge into a compromise, unnecessarily, as it turned out, contributed to Joe's fall. Hanoi's latent hostility to its then ally was brought home to me. On a visit to Hanoi in February 1973, designed to work out the implementation of the Paris Agreement, which had been initialed two weeks earlier, Le Duc To took me on a visit to Hanoi's National Museum, primarily to show me the sections devoted to Vietnam's historic struggles against China, still formally an ally of Vietnam. With the fall of Saigon in 1975, the inherent and historic rivalries burst into the open. Leading to a victory of geopolitics over ideology, it proved that the United States was not alone in wrongly assessing the significance of the Vietnam War. When the United States had first intervened, China viewed it as a kind of last gasp of imperialism. It had almost routinely cast its lot with Hanoi. It interpreted the American intervention as another step toward the encirclement of China. Much as it had viewed the U.S. intervention in Korea a decade earlier, ironically, from a geopolitical point of view, Beijing's and Washington's long-term interests should have been parallel. Both should have preferred the status quo, which was an Indochina divided among four states. Washington resisted Hanoi's domination of Indochina because of the Wilsonian idea of global order. The right of self-determination of existing states, and the notion of a global communist conspiracy. Beijing had the same general objective, but from the geopolitical point of view, because it wanted to avoid the emergence of a Southeast Asia bloc on its southern border. For a while, Beijing seemed to believe that communist ideology would trump a thousand-year history of Vietnamese opposition to Chinese predominance, or else. It did not think it possible that the United States could be brought to total defeat. In the aftermath of the fall of Saigon, 
Beijing was obliged to face the implications of its own policy, and it recoiled before them. The outcome in Indochina merged with the permanent Chinese fear of encirclement. Preventing an Indochina bloc linked to the Soviet Union became the dominant preoccupation of Chinese foreign policy under Deng, and a link to increased cooperation with the United States. Hanoi, Beijing, Moscow, and Washington were playing a quadripartite game of Wei Qi. Events in Cambodia and in Vietnam would determine who would wind up surrounded and neutralized: Beijing or Hanoi. Beijing's nightmare of encirclement by a hostile power appeared to be coming true. Vietnam alone was formidable enough, but if it realized its aim of an Indo-Chinese federation, it would approach a bloc of 100 million in population and be in a position to bring formidable pressure on Thailand and other Southeast Asian states. In this context, the independence of Cambodia as a counterweight to Hanoi became a principal Chinese objective. As early as August 1975, three months after the fall of Saigon, Deng Xiaoping told the visiting Khmer Rouge leader Qiu Samphan, "When one superpower, the United States, was compelled to withdraw its forces from Indochina, the other superpower, the Soviet Union, seized the opportunity to extend its evil tentacles to Southeast Asia in an attempt to carry out expansion there." Cambodia and China, Deng said. Both face the task of combating imperialism and hegemonies. We firmly believe that our two peoples will unite even more closely and march together towards new victories in the common struggle. During a March 1976 visit of Lao Prime Minister Kaesong Phomvian to Beijing, Hua Guofeng, then Premier, warned of the Soviet Union to the effect that, in particular, the superpower. That hawk's detente, while extending its grabbing claws everywhere, is stepping up its armed expansion and war preparations, and attempting to bring more countries into its sphere of influence and play the hegemonic overlord. Freed from the necessity of feigning communist solidarity in the face of the American imperialist threat, the adversaries moved into open opposition to each other soon after the fall of Saigon in April 1975. Within six months of the fall of all of Indochina, 150,000 Vietnamese were forced to leave Cambodia. A comparable number of ethnically Chinese Vietnamese citizens were obliged to flee Vietnam. By February 1976, China ended its aid program to Vietnam, and a year later, it cut off any deliveries based on existing programs. Concurrently, Hanoi moved toward the Soviet Union. At a meeting of the Vietnamese Politburo in June 1978, China was identified as Vietnam's principal enemy. The same month, Vietnam joined Comecon, the Soviet-led trade bloc. In November 1978, the Soviet Union and Vietnam signed the Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation, which contained military clauses. In December 1978, Vietnamese troops invaded Cambodia. Overthrowing the Khmer Rouge and installing a pro-Vietnamese government, ideology had disappeared from the conflict. The communist power centers were conducting a balance of power contest based not on ideology but on national interest.
Viewed from Beijing, a strategic nightmare was evolving along China's borders. In the north, the Soviet build-up continued unabated. Moscow still maintained nearly 50 divisions along the border. To China's west, Afghanistan had undergone a Marxist coup and was subjected to increasingly overt Soviet influence. Note: In April 1978, the Afghan president was assassinated and his government replaced. On December 5, 1978, the Soviet Union and the new government of Afghanistan entered into a treaty of friendship, good neighborliness, and cooperation. And on February 19, 1979, the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan was assassinated. Beijing also saw Moscow's hand in the Iranian Revolution, which culminated with the flight of the Shah on January 16, 1979. Moscow. Continued to push an Asian collective security system, with no other plausible purpose than to contain China. Meanwhile, Moscow was negotiating the Salt II Treaty with Washington. In Beijing's perception, such agreements served to push the ill waters of the Soviet Union eastward toward China. China seemed to be in an exceptionally vulnerable position. Now, Vietnam had joined the Soviet camp. The unforeseeable outcomes predicted by Pham Van Dong to Joe in 1968 appeared to include Soviet encirclement of China. An additional complication was that all these challenges occurred while Dong was still consolidating his position in his second return to power, a process not completed until 1980. A principal difference between Chinese and Western diplomatic strategy is the reaction to perceived vulnerability. American and Western diplomats conclude that they should move carefully to avoid provocation. Chinese response is more likely to magnify defiance. Western diplomats tend to conclude from an unfavorable balance of forces an imperative for a diplomatic solution. They urge diplomatic initiatives to place the other side in the wrong, to isolate it morally, but to desist from the use of force. This was essentially the American advice to Deng. After Vietnam invaded Cambodia and occupied it, Chinese strategists are more likely to increase their commitment to substitute courage and psychological pressure against the material advantage of the adversary. They believe in deterrence in the form of preemption. When Chinese planners conclude that their opponent is gaining unacceptable advantage, and that the strategic trend is turning against them, they respond by seeking to undermine the enemy's confidence. And allow China to reclaim the psychological, if not material, upper hand. Faced with a threat on all fronts, Deng decided to go on the diplomatic and strategic offensive. Though not yet in complete control in Beijing, he moved daringly on several levels abroad. He changed the Chinese position toward the Soviet Union, from containment to explicit strategic hostility, and in effect to roll back. China would no longer confine itself to advising the United States on how to contain the Soviet Union. It would now play an active role in constructing an anti-Soviet and anti-Vietnam coalition, especially in Asia. It would put the pieces in place for a possible showdown with Hanoi. Deng's foreign policy, dialogue with America, and normalization. When Deng returned from his second exile in 1977. He reversed Mao's domestic policy, but left Mao's foreign policy largely in place. 
This was because both shared strong national feelings and had parallel views of the Chinese national interest. It was also because foreign policy had set more absolute limits to Mao's revolutionary impulses than domestic policy. There was, however, a significant difference in style between Mao's criticism and Deng's. Mao had questioned the strategic intentions of America's Soviet policy. Deng assumed an identity of strategic interests and concentrated on achieving a parallel implementation. Mao dealt with the Soviet Union as a kind of abstract strategic threat, whose menace was no more applicable to China than to the rest of the world. Deng recognized the special danger to China, especially an immediate threat at China's southern border, compounding a latent threat in the north. Dialogue therefore took on a more operational character. Mao acted like a frustrated teacher, Deng as a demanding partner. In the face of actual peril, Deng ended the ambivalence about the American relationship of Mao's last year. There was no longer any Chinese nostalgia for opportunities on behalf of world revolution. Deng, in all conversations after his return, argued that in resisting the thrust of Soviet policy toward Europe, China and Japan needed to be brought into a global design. However close the consultation had become between China and the United States, the anomaly continued that America still formally recognized Taiwan as the legitimate government of China and Taipei as the capital of China. China's adversaries along its northern and southern borders might misconstrue the absence of recognition as an opportunity. Normalization of relations moved to the top of the Sino-American agenda as Jimmy Carter took office. The first visit to Beijing of the new Secretary of State Cyrus Vance in August 1977 did not turn out well. I left Washington, he wrote in his memoirs, believing it would be unwise to take on an issue as politically controversial as normalization with China until the Panama issue, referring to the ratification of the Panama Canal Treaty turning over operation of the canal, was out of the way, unless and I did not expect it to happen, the Chinese were to accept our proposal across the board. For political reasons, I intended to represent a maximum position to the Chinese on the Taiwan issue. Accordingly, I did not expect the Chinese to accept our proposal, but I felt it wise to make it, even though we might eventually have to abandon it. The American proposal on Taiwan contained a series of ideas involving retention of some limited American diplomatic presence on Taiwan that had been put forward and rejected during the Ford administration. The proposals were rejected again by Deng, who called them a step backward. A year later, the internal American debate ended when President Carter decided to assign high priority to the relationship with China. Soviet pressures in Africa and the Middle East convinced the new president to opt for rapid normalization with China by what amounted to the quest for a de facto strategic alliance with China. On May 17, 1978, Carter sent his national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, to Beijing with these instructions. 
You should stress that I see the Soviet Union as essentially in a competitive relationship with the United States, though there are also some cooperative aspects. To state it most succinctly, my concern is that the combination of increasing Soviet military power and political short-sightedness, fed by big power ambitions, might tempt the Soviet Union both to exploit local turbulence, especially in the Third World, and to intimidate our friends in order to seek political advantage and eventually even political preponderance. Brzezinski was also authorized to reaffirm the five principles enunciated by Nixon to Joe in 1972. Note, the five principles were affirmation of a one-China policy, a commitment not to offer American support to Taiwan independence movements, American discouragement of a hypothetical Japanese deployment into Taiwan, support for any peaceful resolution between Beijing and Taipei, and a commitment to continue normalization. Long a strong advocate of strategic cooperation with China, Brzezinski carried out his instructions with enthusiasm and skill. When he visited Beijing in May 1978 in pursuit of normalizing relations, Brzezinski found a receptive audience. Deng was eager to proceed with normalization, to enlist Washington more firmly in a coalition to oppose, by means of what he called real solid down-to-earth work, Soviet advances in every corner of the globe. The Chinese leaders were deeply aware of the strategic dangers surrounding them, but they presented their analysis less as a national concern than as a broader view of global conditions. Turmoil under heaven, the horizontal line, the three worlds, all represented general theories of international relations, not distinct national perceptions. Foreign Minister Huang Hua's analysis of the international situation displayed a remarkable self-confidence. Rather than appearing as a supplicant in what was, after all, a very difficult situation for China, Huang struck the attitude of a Confucian teacher lecturing on how to conduct a comprehensive foreign policy. He opened with a general assessment of the contradictions between the two superpowers, the futility of negotiations with the Soviet Union, and the inevitability of a world war. The Soviet Union is the most dangerous source of war. Your Excellency has mentioned that the Soviet Union is confronted with many difficulties. That is true. To strive for world hegemony is the fixed strategic goal of Soviet socialist imperialism. Although it may suffer a lot of setbacks, it will never give up its ambition. Huang raised concerns that also bothered American students of strategy, especially those which tried to relate nuclear weapons to traditional ways of thinking about strategy. Reliance on nuclear weapons would open up a gap between deterrent threats and the willingness to implement them. As for the argument that the Soviet Union would not dare to use conventional arms for fear of nuclear attack from the West, this is only wishful thinking. To base a strategic stance on this thinking is not only dangerous, but also unreliable. In the Middle East, the flank of Europe and a source of energy in a future war, the United States had failed to check Soviet advances. It had issued a joint statement on the Middle East with the Soviet Union, inviting regional states to a conference to explore the prospect of a comprehensive Palestinian settlement 
thus opening the door wide for the Soviet Union to further infiltrate the Middle East. Washington had left President Anwar Sadat of Egypt, whose bold action had created a situation unfavorable to the Soviet Union, in a dangerous position and allowed the Soviet Union to seize the chance to raise serious division among the Arab countries. Note, Sadat served as president of Egypt from 1970 until his assassination in 1981. The bold action referred to included Sadat's expulsion of over 20,000 Soviet military advisors from Egypt in 1972, the launching of the October 1973 war, and the subsequent entry into a peace process with Israel. Huang summed up the situation by invoking an old Chinese proverb. Appeasement of Moscow, he said, was like giving wings to a tiger to strengthen it. But a policy of coordinated pressure would prevail. Since the Soviet Union was only outwardly strong, but inwardly weak, it bullies the weak and fears the strong. All this was to supply the context for Indochina. Huang addressed the problem of regional hegemony. America, of course, had trod this path a good ten years earlier. Vietnam aimed to dominate Cambodia and Laos and establish an Indochina Federation. And behind that, there lies the Soviet Union. Hanoi had already achieved a dominant position in Laos, stationing troops there and maintaining advisors in every department and in every level in Laos. But Hanoi had encountered resistance in Cambodia, which opposed Vietnamese regional ambitions. Vietnamese-Cambodian tension represented not merely some sporadic skirmishes along the borders, but a major conflict which may last for a long time. Unless Hanoi gave up its goal of dominating Indochina, the problem will not be solved in a short period. Deng followed up the Huang Hua critique later that day. Concessions and agreements had never produced Soviet restraint, he warned Brzezinski. Fifteen years of arms control agreements had allowed the Soviet Union to achieve strategic parity with the United States. Trade with the Soviet Union meant that the U.S. is helping the Soviet Union overcome its weaknesses. Deng offered a mocking assessment of American responses to Soviet adventurism in the Third World and chided Washington for trying to please Moscow. Your spokesmen have constantly justified and apologized for Soviet actions. Sometimes they say there are no signs to prove that there is the meddling of the Soviet Union and Cuba in the case of Zaire or Angola. It is of no use for you to say so. To be candid with you, whenever you are about to conclude an agreement with the Soviet Union, it is the product of a concession on the U.S. side to please the Soviet side. It was an extraordinary performance. The country, which was the principal target of the Soviet Union, was proposing joint action as a conceptual obligation, not a bargain between nations, much less as a request. At a moment of great national danger, which its own analysis demonstrated, China nevertheless acted as an instructor on strategy, not as a passive consumer of American prescriptions, as America's European allies frequently did. The staples of much of the American debate, international law, multilateral solutions, popular consensus, were absent from the Chinese analysis 
except as practical tools to an agreed objective. And that objective, as Dung pointed out to Brzezinski, was coping with the polar bear. And that's that. But for Americans, there is a limit to the so-called realist approach in the fundamental values of American society. And the murderous Khmer Rouge governing Cambodia represented such a limit. No American president could treat the Khmer Rouge as another stone in the Wei Chi strategy. Its genocidal conduct, driving the population of Phnom Penh into the jungle, mass killings of designated categories of civilians, could not simply be ignored. Though, as we shall see, necessity did on occasion abort principle. Hua Guofeng, still premier, was even more emphatic in a meeting the next day. We have also told a lot of our friends that the main danger of war comes from the Soviet Union. Then how should we deal with it? The first thing is, one should make preparations. If one is prepared, and once a war breaks out, one will not find himself in a disadvantageous position. The second thing is that it is imperative to try to upset the strategic deployment of Soviet aggression. Because in order to obtain hegemony in the world, the Soviet Union has first to obtain air and naval bases throughout the world. So it has to make a strategic deployment, and we must try to upset its plans for global deployment. No member of the Atlantic Alliance had put forward a comparably sweeping call to joint, essentially preemptive action, or had indicated that it was prepared to act alone on its assessment. Operationally, the Chinese leaders were proposing a kind of cooperation in many ways more intimate and surely more risk-taking than the Atlantic Alliance. They sought to implement the strategy of offensive deterrence described in earlier chapters. Its special feature was that Deng proposed no formal structure or long-term obligation. A common assessment would supply the impetus for common action. But the de facto alliance would not survive if the assessments began to diverge. China insisted on being self-reliant even when in extreme danger. That China was so insistent on joint action, despite the scathing criticism of specific American policies, demonstrated that cooperation with the United States for security was perceived as imperative. Normalization emerged as a first step toward a common global policy. From the time of the secret visit in July 1971, the Chinese conditions for normalization had been explicit and unchanging. Withdrawal of all American forces from Taiwan, ending the defense treaty with Taiwan, and establishing diplomatic relations with China exclusively with the government in Beijing. It had been part of the Chinese position in the Shanghai communique. Two presidents, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, had agreed to these conditions. Nixon had indicated he would realize them in his second term. Both Nixon and Ford had emphasized America's concern for a peaceful solution to the issue, including continuation of some security assistance for Taiwan. They had not been able to fulfill these promises because of the impact of Watergate. In an unusual act of nonpartisan foreign policy, President Carter, early in his term, reaffirmed all the undertakings regarding Taiwan that Nixon had made to Joe in February 1972. In 1978, he put forward a specific formula for normalization to enable both sides to maintain their established principles, 
reaffirmation of the principles accepted by Nixon and Ford, an American statement stressing the country's commitment to peaceful change, Chinese acquiescence to some American arms sales to Taiwan. Carter advanced these ideas personally in a conversation with the Chinese ambassador, Chai Zimin, in which he threatened that, in the absence of American arms sales, Taiwan would be obliged to resort to developing nuclear weapons. As if the United States had no influence over Taiwan's plans or actions. In the end, normalization came about when Carter supplied a deadline by inviting Deng to visit Washington. Deng agreed with unspecified arms sales to Taiwan, and did not contradict an American declaration that Washington expected the ultimate solution of the Taiwan issue to be peaceful, even though China had established an extended record that it would undertake no formal obligation to that effect. Beijing's position remained, as Deng had stressed to Brzezinski, that the liberation of Taiwan is an internal affair of China, in which no foreign country has the right to interfere. Normalization meant that the American embassy would move from Taipei to Beijing. A diplomat from Beijing would replace Taipei's representative in Washington. In response, the U.S. Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act in April 1979, which expressed the American concerns regarding the future as a binding law for Americans. It could not, of course, bind China. This balance between American and Chinese imperatives illustrates why ambiguity is sometimes the lifeblood of diplomacy. Much of normalization has been sustained for 40 years by a series of ambiguities, but it cannot do so indefinitely. Wise statesmanship on both sides is needed to move the process forward. Deng's journeys, as Deng moved from exhortation to implementation. He saw to it that China would not wait passively for American decisions. Wherever possible, especially in Southeast Asia, he would create the political framework he was advocating. Where Mao had summoned foreign leaders to his residence like an emperor, Deng adopted the opposite approach, touring Southeast Asia, the United States, and Japan, and practicing his own brand of highly visible, blunt, and occasionally hectoring diplomacy. In 1978 and 1979, Deng undertook a series of journeys to change China's image abroad from revolutionary challenger to fellow victim of Soviet and Vietnamese geopolitical designs. China had been on the other side during the Vietnam War. In Thailand and Malaysia, China had previously encouraged revolution among the overseas Chinese and minority populations. All this was now subordinated to dealing with the immediate threat. Note: In recent years, Chinese leaders and policy analysts have introduced the phrase "peaceful rise" to describe China's foreign policy aspiration to achieve major power status within the framework of the existing international system. In a thoughtful article synthesizing both Chinese and Western scholarship on the concept, the scholar Barry Buzzum. Raises the prospect that China's peaceful rise began in the late 1970s and early 1980s, as Deng increasingly aligned China's domestic development and foreign policy to the non-revolutionary world, and sought out common interests with the West. Deng's trips abroad offered dramatic proof of this realignment. 
In an interview with Time magazine in February 1979, Deng advertised the Chinese strategic design to a large public. If we really want to be able to place curbs on the polar bear, the only realistic thing for us is to unite. If we only depend on the strength of the U.S., it is not enough. If we only depend on the strength of Europe, it is not enough. We are an insignificant, poor country. But if we unite, well, it will then carry weight. Throughout his trips, Deng stressed China's relative backwardness and its desire to acquire technology and expertise from advanced industrial nations. But he maintained that China's lack of development did not alter its determination to resist Soviet and Vietnamese expansion, if necessary, by force and alone. Deng's overseas travel and his repeated invocations of China's poverty. Were striking departures from the tradition of Chinese statecraft. Few Chinese rulers had ever gone abroad. Of course, since in the traditional conception they ruled all under heaven, there technically was no abroad to go to. Deng's willingness openly to emphasize China's backwardness and need to learn from others stood in sharp contrast to the aloofness of China's emperors and officialdom in dealing with foreigners. Never had a Chinese ruler proclaimed to foreigners a need for foreign goods. The Qing court had accepted foreign innovations in limited doses. For example, in its welcoming attitude to Jesuit astronomers and mathematicians, but had always insisted that foreign trade was an expression of Chinese goodwill, not a necessity for China. Mao too had stressed self-reliance, even at the price of impoverishment and isolation. Deng began his travels in Japan. The occasion was the ratification of the treaty by which normalization of diplomatic relations between Japan and China had been negotiated. Deng's strategic design required reconciliation, not simply normalization, so that Japan could help isolate the Soviet Union and Vietnam. For this objective, Deng was prepared to bring to a close half a century of suffering inflicted on China by Japan. Deng conducted himself exuberantly, declaring, "My heart is full of joy," and hugging his Japanese counterpart—a gesture for which his host could have found few precedents in his own society, or for that matter, in China's. Deng made no attempt to hide China's economic lag. If you have an ugly face, it is no use pretending that you are handsome. When asked to sign a visitor book, he wrote an unprecedented appreciation of Japanese accomplishments. We learn from and pay respect to the Japanese people, who are great, diligent, brave, and intelligent. In November 1978, Deng visited Southeast Asia, traveling to Malaysia, Singapore, and Thailand. He branded Vietnam the Cuba of the East, and spoke of the newly signed Soviet-Vietnamese treaty as a threat to world peace. In Thailand, on November 8, 1978. Deng stressed that the security and peace of Asia, the Pacific, and the whole world are threatened by the Soviet-Vietnamese treaty. This treaty is not directed against China alone; it is a very important worldwide Soviet scheme. You may believe that the meaning of the treaty is to encircle China. I have told friendly countries that China is not afraid of being encircled. It has a most important meaning for Asia and the Pacific. 
the security and peace of Asia, the Pacific, and the whole world are threatened. On his visit to Singapore, Deng met a kindred spirit in the extraordinary Prime Minister Li Kuan Yew and glimpsed a vision of China's possible future. A majority Chinese society, prospering under what Deng would later describe admiringly as strict administration and good public order. At the time, China was still desperately poor, and its own public order had barely survived the Cultural Revolution. Li Kuan Yew recounted a memorable exchange. He invited me to visit China again. I said I would when China had recovered from the Cultural Revolution. That, he said, would take a long time. I countered that they should have no problem getting ahead and doing much better than Singapore, because we were the descendants of illiterate landless peasants from Fujian and Guangdong, while they had the progeny of the scholars, mandarins, and literati who had stayed at home. He was silent. Li paid tribute to Deng's pragmatism and willingness to learn from experience. Li also used the opportunity to express some of Southeast Asia's concerns that might not filter through the Chinese bureaucratic and diplomatic screen. China wanted Southeast Asian countries to unite with it to isolate the Russian bear. The fact was that our neighbors wanted us to unite and isolate the Chinese dragon. There were no overseas Russians in Southeast Asia, leading communist insurgencies supported by the Soviet Union as there were overseas Chinese, encouraged and supported by the Chinese Communist Party and government, posing threats to Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, and to a lesser extent, Indonesia. Also, China was openly asserting a special relationship with the overseas Chinese because of blood ties, and was making direct appeals to their patriotism over the heads of the governments of these countries of which they were citizens. I suggested that we discuss how to resolve this problem. In the event, Lee proved correct. The Southeast Asian countries, with the exception of Singapore, behaved with great caution in confronting either the Soviet Union or Vietnam. Nevertheless, Deng achieved his fundamental objectives. His many public statements constituted a warning of a possible Chinese effort to remedy the situation and they were bound to be noted by the United States, which was a key building block for Deng's design. That strategic design needed a more firmly defined relationship with America. Deng's visit to America and the new definition of alliance. Deng's visit to the United States was announced to celebrate the normalization of relations between the two countries and to inaugurate a common strategy that elaborating on the Shanghai communique applied primarily to the Soviet Union. It also demonstrated a special skill of Chinese diplomacy to create the impression of support by countries that have not in fact agreed to that role or even been asked to play it. The pattern began in the crisis over the offshore islands 20 years earlier. Mao had begun the 1958 shelling of Kemoi and Matsu three weeks after Khrushchev's tense visit to Beijing creating the impression that Moscow had agreed to Beijing's actions in advance, which was not the case. Eisenhower had gone so far as to accuse Khrushchev of helping to instigate the crisis. Following the same tactic, Deng preceded the war with Vietnam with a high-profile visit to the United States. In neither case did China ask for assistance for its impending military endeavor. 
Khrushchev was apparently not informed of the 1958 operation and resented being faced with the risk of nuclear war. Washington was informed of the 1979 invasion after Deng's arrival in America, but gave no explicit support and limited the U.S. role to intelligence sharing and diplomatic coordination. In both cases, Beijing succeeded in creating the impression that its actions enjoyed the blessing of one superpower, thus discouraging the other superpower from intervening. In that subtle and daring strategy, the Soviet Union in 1958 had been powerless to prevent the Chinese attack on the offshore islands. With respect to Vietnam, it was left guessing as to what had been agreed during Deng's visit, and was likely to assume the worst from its point of view. In that sense, Deng's visit to the United States was a kind of shadow play, one of whose purposes was to intimidate the Soviet Union. Deng's week-long tour of the United States was part diplomatic summit, part business trip, part barnstorming political campaign, and part psychological warfare for the Third Vietnam War. The trip included stops in Washington D.C., Atlanta, Houston, and Seattle, and produced scenes unimaginable under Mao. At a state dinner at the White House on January 29th. The leader of Red China dined with the heads of Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and General Motors. At a gala event at the Kennedy Center, the diminutive vice premier shook hands with members of the Harlem Globetrotters basketball team. Dung played to the crowd at a rodeo and barbecue in Simonton, Texas, donning a ten-gallon hat and riding in a stagecoach. Throughout the visit. Deng stressed China's need to acquire foreign technology and develop its economy. At his request, he toured manufacturing and technology facilities, including a Ford assembly plant in Hapeville, Georgia, the Hughes Tool Company in Houston, where Deng inspected drill bits for use in offshore oil exploration, and the Boeing plant outside Seattle. On his arrival in Houston. Dung avowed his desire to learn about your advanced experience in the petroleum industry and other fields. Dung offered a hopeful assessment of Sino-U.S. relations, proclaiming his desire to get to know all about American life and absorb everything of benefit to us. At the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Dung lingered in the space shuttle flight simulator. One news report captured the scene. Dung Xiaoping. Who is using his trip to the United States to dramatize China's eagerness for advanced technology? Climbed into the cockpit of a flight simulator here today to discover what it would be like to land this newest American spacecraft from an altitude of 100,000 feet. China's senior deputy prime minister Deng seemed to be so fascinated by the experience that he went through a second landing, and even then seemed reluctant to leave the simulator. This was worlds away from the Qing emperor's studied indifference to McCartney's gifts and promises of trade, or Mao's rigid insistence on economic autarky. At his meeting with President Carter on January 29th, Deng explained China's four modernizations policy, put forward by Zhou in his last public appearance, which promised to modernize the fields of agriculture, industry, science and technology, and national defense. All this was subordinate to the overriding purpose of Deng's trip: to develop a de facto alliance between the United States and China. 
he summed up, Mr. President, you asked for a sketch of our strategy. To realize our four modernizations, we need a prolonged period of a peaceful environment. But even now, we believe the Soviet Union will launch a war. But if we act well and properly, it is possible to postpone it. China hopes to postpone a war for 22 years. Note, 22 years represented the interval between the two world wars. Since more than 22 years had elapsed since the end of the Second World War, Chinese leaders were nervous that a certain historical rhythm was moving events. Mao had made the same point to the Australian communist leader E.F. Hill a decade earlier. Under such a premise, we are not recommending the establishment of a formal alliance, but each should act on the basis of our standpoint and coordinate our activities and adopt necessary measures. This aim could be attained. If our efforts are to no avail, then the situation will become more and more empty. To act as allies without forming an alliance was pushing realism to extremes. If all leaders were competent strategists and thought deeply and systematically about strategy, they would all come to the same conclusions. Alliances would be unnecessary. The logic of their analysis would impel parallel directions. But differences of history and geography apart, even similarly situated leaders do not necessarily come to identical conclusions, especially under stress. Analysis depends on interpretation. Judgments differ as to what constitutes a fact, even more about its significance. Countries have therefore made alliances, formal instruments that insulate the common interest to the extent possible from extraneous circumstances or domestic pressures. They create an additional obligation to calculations of national interest. They also provide a legal obligation to justify common defense, which can be appealed to in a crisis. Finally, alliances reduce, to the extent that they are seriously pursued, the danger of miscalculation by the potential adversary, and thereby inject an element of calculability into the conduct of foreign policy. Deng and most Chinese leaders considered a formal alliance unnecessary in the U.S.-Chinese relationship and on the whole redundant in the conduct of their foreign policy. They were prepared to rely on tacit understandings. But there was also an implied warning in Deng's last sentence. If it was not possible to define or implement parallel interests, the relationship would turn empty, that is to say, would wither, and China would presumably return to Mao's Three Worlds concept, which was still official policy to enable China to navigate between the superpowers. The parallel interests, in Deng's view, would express themselves in an informal global arrangement to contain the Soviet Union in Asia by political-military cooperation with parallel objectives to NATO in Europe. It was to be less structured and depended largely on the bilateral Sino-U.S. political relationship. It was also based on a different geopolitical doctrine. NATO sought to unite its partners, above all, in resistance against actual Soviet aggression. It demonstratively avoided any concept of military preemption. Concerned with avoiding diplomatic confrontation, the strategic doctrine of NATO has been exclusively defensive. What Deng was proposing was an essentially preemptive policy. It was an aspect of China's offensive deterrence doctrine, 
the Soviet Union was to be pressured along its entire periphery, and especially in regions to which it had extended its presence only recently, notably in Southeast Asia and even in Africa. If necessary, China would be prepared to initiate military action to thwart Soviet designs, especially in Southeast Asia. The Soviet Union would never be bound by agreements, Deng warned. It understood only the language of countervailing force. The Roman statesman Cato the Elder is reputed to have ended all his speeches with the clarion call, Carthago de lenda est, Carthage must be destroyed. Deng had his own trademark exhortation, that the Soviet Union must be resisted. He included in all his presentations some variation on the admonition that Moscow's unchanging nature was to squeeze in wherever there is an opening, and that, as Deng told President Carter, wherever the Soviet Union sticks its fingers, there we must chop them off. Deng's analysis of the strategic situation included a notification to the White House that China intended to go to war with Vietnam because it had concluded that Vietnam would not stop at Cambodia. The so-called Indo-Chinese Federation is to include more than three states, Deng warned. Ho Chi Minh cherished this idea. The three states is only the first step. Then Thailand is to be included. China had an obligation to act, Deng declared. It could not await developments. Once they had occurred, it would be too late. Deng told Carter that he had considered the worst possibility, massive Soviet intervention, as the new Moscow-Hanoi defense treaty seemingly required. Indeed, reports indicated that Beijing had evacuated up to 300,000 civilians from its northern border territories and put its forces along the Sino-Soviet border on maximum alert. But, Deng told Carter, Beijing judged that a brief, limited war would not give Moscow time for a large reaction, and that winter conditions would make a full-scale Soviet attack on northern China difficult. China was not afraid, Deng stated, but it needed Washington's moral support, by which he meant sufficient ambiguity about American designs to give the Soviets pause. A month after the war, Hua Guofeng explained to me the careful strategic analysis that had preceded it. We also considered this possibility of a Soviet reaction. The first possibility was a major attack on us. That we considered a low possibility. A million troops are along the border, but for a major attack on China, that is not enough. If they took back some of the troops from Europe, it would take time and they would worry about Europe. They know a battle with China would be a major matter and could not be concluded in a short period of time. Deng confronted Carter with a challenge to both principle and public attitude. In principle, Carter did not approve preemptive strategies, especially since they involved military movements across sovereign borders. At the same time, he took seriously, even when he did not fully share, National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski's view of the strategic implications of the Vietnamese occupation of Cambodia, which was parallel to Deng's. Carter resolved his dilemma by invoking principle, but leaving scope for adjustment to circumstance. Mild disapproval shaded into vague, tacit endorsement. He called attention to the favorable moral position that Beijing would forfeit by attacking Vietnam. 
China, now widely considered a peaceful country, would run the risk of being accused of aggression. This is a serious issue. Not only do you face a military threat from the north, but also a change in international attitude. China is now seen as a peaceful country that is against aggression. The ASEAN countries, as well as the UN, have condemned the Soviet Union, Vietnam, and Cuba. I do not need to know the punitive action being contemplated, but it could result in escalation of violence and a change in the world posture from being against Vietnam to partial support for Vietnam. It would be difficult for us to encourage violence. We can give you intelligence briefings. We know of no recent movements of Soviet troops towards your borders. I have no other answer for you. We have joined in the condemnation of Vietnam, but invasion of Vietnam would be a very serious destabilizing action.